Coming up this week on the Smitty and Mitty Show, we're joined by author Eric Zweig to talk about his brand new book getting released right now. Plus, Charlie Montoyo is fired, the Sens are looking good, and much, much more. And now... Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? Start your engines! 90% of the time, I have no idea what I'm talking about. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. The show that's got everyone saying... You're so dumb, for real. With Smitty. What you just said is one of the most idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. And Smitty. I've been in this business 15 years. What's your name? you. That's my name. This is the Smitty Mini Show. Smitty and Mini Show back here for another week across the TSMS radio network and episode 97 on the Smitty and Mini Show podcast. We are dangerously close to episode number 100. Are you prepared, Mini? Um, I should probably find a guest. Probably find a decent guest for 100. I, that, think so. I feel like that just insults every guest that we've had. If I say that we need to find a decent guest for 100. Yeah, we've had some amazing guests and I would be very proud to have a lot of our guests back on for the 100. Yeah. Some of them just don't want to. So yeah, take it, take it with a grain of salt. Uh, so many videos show big thanks to our sponsors here helping us out every single week. Dave Middleton at Sun Life Financial and Ken Carden. Life is brighter under the sun. Gold line curling, the choice of champions. And make sure you check out the Jack Drury Memorial Dirt Bowl under a month until the event happens in Port Elgin. You don't want to miss it. More details on their social media channels. Question. Wedding in about a month, a little bit, a little bit more than a month. We still don't have a shuttle because nobody will basically respond to us. They're <laughs> like, nobody has the people to have to send us a bus. And the one person that did, it was going to be three grand. And that's, that's not happening. That's not happening at all. So you think it's illegal if I just give one of my friends like $300 to just drive the van back and forth a couple of times? What do you mean? Is it illegal? I don't Are know. You think that's illegal because that's very illegal. Well, not not the per not the per the person that's not driving. The person that's driving is not going to be drinking. They'll just be like one of my brother's friends who has a license. I could just be like, "Hey, here's three hundred dollars. Drive me for the night." No, it's just like a personal courier. So I think that's the best personal courier. That mean we have uh, we have a guy, the packages. The guy that runs the variety store here in town also Ubers, and he does like private side jobs for like stuff like that. Like if you have to go to the airport or something, he'll drive you. Um, I can give you his number if you want. You might not want to come up that far, but maybe I, I, I highly doubt for three hundred dollars you're going to come to Chesley. Well, put it up to five. It's a pretty decent night. Am I wrong? Am I wrong? For him to drive up there, he's going to have to stay over. He's not going to drive up and back on a wedding night. Might not. He's only there to shuttle people back and forth. It's not going to take all night, is it? Well, I mean, when's the last shuttle going to be gone? One in the morning? I don't know. Depends when I, I get it. pulled out of the lake. <laughs> that was the big, there's big signs. You're not allowed in the lake. I have to keep people out of the lake. That is one of my main jobs. You are going to pe- keep people out of the lake. You are not going to be able to keep people out of the lake. There's definitely going to be somebody in that water. For sure. Somebody's going to end up 100%. getting in the water. Okay, look. Do we thank the sponsors? I don't even remember. We thank the sponsors. And quickly okay. here, while I'm on the wedding, you mentioned we're less than a month away. We still need like shirts from the, from the uh, suit place. Or do we need pants? What do we need? We're missing something. I don't vest. know what it is. We need a vest. They didn't have vest. they didn't have vest big enough to. Have you heard about that yet? Yeah, he said they're they're going to be here soon. I just ordered the last one, last suit. Never. Everyone's going to be fine. I okay. think suits, okay. suits were absolutely covered. Look, we don't have a lot of time. We only have like three minutes here. So hockey, we got to talk about hockey quick. Because the... you want to talk about Toronto or Ottawa? Pick one. Well, I feel like we can talk about them hand in hand because a pretty big, kind of shocking trade happened between the Sens and the Leafs since the last time we recorded okay from the Ottawa side how do you feel about that trade Matt Murray by the way heading to Toronto along with like a seventh and a third I believe and I think basically a player to be named later going back to Ottawa yeah it was and Ottawa's retaining 20 percent 25 percent of his salary um which leaves about what did we say four six four point six left for the Leafs to pay for Murray for per year listen as a Sens fan, I like the move. Um, Murray is a little bit prone to injury. He hasn't had a lot of success in Ottawa. Of course, he's a two-time Stanley Cup champion. 
he's a fantastic goaltender. He just needs to get healthy and get some good playing time. And to be honest with it, it's one of those situations where I hope him to have success, right? Like he was, he was a good goaltender. He just didn't have that in Ottawa. And I don't think the Sens were the right team for him, like a good fit, if that makes sense. So I'm happy to see him move on and the Sens only have to retain 25% of his salary. I think it's a win. Listen, if I remember, he had a 3-3 goals against last year and a 9.05 save percentage. Those are respectable numbers. And let's be honest, the Toronto Maple Leafs are going to make the playoffs. They, they're just going to make the playoffs. So you need somebody to take you through the playoffs. And can Matt Murray do that? He's proven it. He's proven he can take a team to the Stanley Cup. He's proven he can win a cup. Something that the Leafs haven't had in the last couple goaltenders that they have had here. A, a goalie that has proven they can take him to the finals. I think that this move is phenomenal. I think the Ottawa defense has been atrocious for multiple years. I think he's been peppered with shots. He's been hurt, like you said, probably because of just playing time and other things like that. If he can stay healthy uh, with this Toronto Maple Leafs blue line that is adding Ben today, that is added uh, Victor Mete today, that is just getting deeper. I think that all he has to do is make the saves in front of him and take this team and take a team that's going to score six goals a game. I think he can do it. I think this is a phenomenal move that people are going to regret um, not liking in the future. It, it just comes down to the health thing, man. He only played 20 games last year for Ottawa, dealt with injury. The year How many before, of that was because of injury? How many was because they had young goaltenders they wanted to see? Almost all of it was because of injury. He was never healthy. He was never 100%. You didn't want to put him in, right? The year before that, he only played 25 in the shortened season. The year before the pandemic, he only played like 35 or 40 games. That's not even half your year. Right? Is that the guy you want to be your number one? You knew who else was very injury prone before they got to Toronto? Jack Campbell. And what Toronto did was earn him a, what, a five-year deal? A four-year deal? I don't even remember what it was. But Five by five, I think. The team has been able to split goaltending time because they have the luxury of knowing they're going to make the playoffs. So they can split a little bit of time. Maybe go, you know, I, I think Murray's going to end up with probably 35 to 40 games. He's going to end up with, you know, 25 to 30 wins. And he's going to end up with the playoffs and he's going to end up with, you know, a three, five goals against, and that's probably what he's going to be. And I'm going to be fine with that. Can I ask you one quick question here? And then we got to get to our interview on the show this week with the moves that the Sens have made this week. Are you any more worried about the bet that the Sens will make, or the Leafs will win the cup before the Sens make the playoffs? Yes. So that's, that's all the, that's all I need to hear. I, I think Ottawa is, spending a lot of money bringing some players in to make themselves competitive so that um, the family can sell the team off and make some money so that you can lose the bet. That's why. No, they, they want to make their money by selling the team and nobody wants an, a terrible team. That's got some, no players and some okay contracts. I'll take it. You could probably afford it where it was before. <laughs> All right, let's get to our interview this week because coming up on the show, we are talking a little bit about hockey, but we're going way back and we're talking to Eric Zweig. Eric is an author, uh, has over 40 titles to his credit, and this most recent one coming out right now, engraved in history, the story of the Kenora Thistle Stanley Cup championship team. Eric joins us on the show right now. Eric, pleasure to have you on the Smitty Mitty Show. Thanks for, thanks for joining us. Thanks, thanks for having me. And the book yeah. that we're talking about today just actually came in to me about three hours before we hopped on to record. It is called Engraved in History, the Story of the Stanley Cup Champion, Kenora Thistles. And I can't wait to read it. Um, so thank you for hopping on. We're going to talk a little bit about the book later on. But first, we're, yeah. we're going to start by talking a little bit about uh, you and about how you became to be an author, a historian, and uh, all that. So it, it's a pleasure to get to talk to you. Um, how did you get into being an author? I know you were a big sports kid growing up. Yeah, played. Well, the, long, the long story, I guess. What As a boy, as a, as a kid in school, I loved sports. I took sports way more seriously than I I took school. Uh, any teacher I had will tell you that. Um, though I think I always knew I either didn't have the skill or probably even more so didn't have the dedication to actually be a professional athlete. I mean, if wishing was enough to, to make it happen, I'd have, I'd have either been a, a football player, a hockey player, or, or one of the skiers with the crazy Canucks. Um, but that you know, wishing doesn't make it happen. Um, in university, I guess, is when I kind of realized I liked uh, researching and preparing and like writing an essay better than I liked studying for a test. You could control your environment better when it was a paper you were writing. Not that I think I was a great essay writer in university, but that's 
that's sort of where I, I really realized this is, this is maybe a skill I have that I can read and research and put together ideas that hopefully make some sense. And also in university, this is funny. I mean, it was like the big breakthrough in my life if it was a movie, but it's such a cheese ball. <laughs> it's not dramatic enough, but the thing that really sort of launched me when I think about it is in my second year in university, I was writing an essay for a political science class. We had to research basically, you know, how a bill becomes a law in Canadian parliament. And I knew that in the basement of the library were all the, the answers, the books of, of the records of Canadian parliament. And I went down and sort of turned left instead of right. And on the wall in front of me was the entire run of the New York Times on microfilm. And I'd never really seen microfilm before. Like to me, microfilm was like spy novel stuff, right? It's like what you smuggle out of a third world country with the, or an iron curtain country with the plans for the nuclear reactor or whatever. But, but microfilm was actually just like a great big film strip that had the whole run of the New York Times, you know, on this wall in the library. And the first thing I looked up was the seventh game of the 1927 World Series, uh, where famously, uh, Grover Alexander came on in relief after having pitched the complete game the day before to strike out Tony Lazari in the seventh inning and then set down the Yankees in the eighth and ninth and save this is 1926 I said 27 the 1926 World Series to save the World Series for the uh, St. Louis Cardinals the first time they'd ever won it and there was always this story about how on one of the early pitches Alexander threw to Lazari he hit this long foul that looked like it was going to be a grand slam home run and turn the game around. And it just hooked foul at the end. And I was always like, all right, how far foul did it go? What will the New York times newspapers tell me, but nothing ever really said it. They just sort of said it was a long drive that hooked foul. So you didn't get the sense like all the books written over the years would say, Oh, you know, foul by inches foul. Couldn't find it. But I kind of realized that a, it was fun to look this stuff up and B there was still wiggle room to, to interpret and, and tell your own stories. And that, I mean, it was several years later before I actually started writing books, but that, that was a true turning point. And when I realized how much I liked looking up this stuff, and most of the, the Kenora Thistles book is, I mean, now, of course, you can find them online on so many websites and, and newspapers that have been digitized, but that was how I did most of the research for this book. And so it's, it all kind of, you know, 40 years later, it all sort of comes in a full circle. Yeah, I mean, you, you kind of answered it there, but I wonder why. <laughs> I, I I wonder why the history of sports, because everyone sits here and thinks it wants to do what us two idiots do and just talk about sports for an hour, right? That's that's what everyone wants to do. It's easy. It's easier to do than than you know dig into the history. But in a way, you need to know your history in order to understand the present in a, in a weird I, way. I like to think so. I mean, people say that in terms of more important things than sports. Um, but I, I mean, it's funny, like increasingly, I have come to like the history of the game. I used to work, so we'll get into that too. For, for 20 plus years, I worked in Toronto for the small publishing company that did the NHL Guide and Record book. We did Total Hockey, which were those two giant, they're on the wall back there, uh, two giant encyclopedias of, of hockey. Mostly people remember it for the stats and there were pages and pages and pages of stats, but there were like 700 pages of essays in those two books as well. Um, but increasingly, it's funny, like I just kind of got, you know, I guess maybe once it became my job, it was a different relationship with sports. I sort of became less of a fan of what was happening day to day and more interested in the stories, I guess, especially with total hockey, when we started um, collecting all the statistics, which a lot of researchers had done independently sort of on their own. And we made a real effort to bring it all together. It was more than just the NHL stats. It was like, every record of where everybody in the NHL had been before they got to the NHL, after they left the NHL. And as you started reading the old stories about these players and matching them up with the numbers, you'd find like silly stuff. But like, I remember specifically like Bill Dernan, who was said to be, you know, the ambidextrous goalie who had these gloves and could play, you know, shot, held his stick and switched his hands sort of as the situation called for. But the stories had always been how he first attracted attention playing in for the Allen Cup in 1934 or the Warren Cup. I can't remember exactly. But as we checked all the numbers, it was obvious that he didn't play for that team in 34. He'd played for that team in 33. So we started having to rewrite the biographies of all these players based on the better statistics we now had for them. So that, I don't know, I just, it's nerdy. I mean, I can't say it isn't. 
but I just got so interested in, you know, finding the true stories. And then I sort of became known as the guy who would find, you know, the true stories behind all the myths you have. Another book that I have that'll be out this fall um, for the Hockey Hall of Fame, their collection of books is called Hockey Hall of Fame True Stories. And it tries to sort of tell the true stories behind all the kind of legendary stories that we've heard. And sometimes they're true. Sometimes it is sort of like broken telephone, you know, where the story starts as one thing. And as everybody tells it, it starts to morph and change. Um, but that, I don't know. I, I, as I said, I, I can't say it's not a crazy nerd interest. And tons of people will like look at me. It's funny, like when Stephen Harper wrote his book about hockey, people thought, it was surprising that a sitting Canadian prime minister was A, writing a book about hockey, and then B, when they found out what it was about, that it was like the ancient early days of the roots of professional hockey, it was like, why would he do that? But I was like, I'm so right there, you know? <laughs> so it's a small kind of group of hardcore crazy people, but there are a lot of people who really find this stuff fascinating and plenty more who would rather talk about, you know, are the Leafs gonna sign Jack Campbell or who are they gonna, where are they gonna pivot when that doesn't happen? But I like the old stuff. I can't deny it. No, they're going to trade for Matt Murray. That's what's <laughs> yeah, it looks like it. That looks Go like for that. I guess. But if it's not for, for you guys who have the passion to research this and to look it up, then I wouldn't know it because I don't have the drive to actually go <laughs> and research it, right? I would rather just read it on a piece of paper that somebody else did the research. So if it wasn't well, for you guys, yeah. hockey history gets almost lost. Well, that's, I mean, those of us who really kind of protect it and research it and tell the stories, certainly it's good to hear you say that, because I think we all feel that way and feel like sometimes we're just, you know, banging our heads against the wall, but it's, it's nice to know that young people care. <laughs> well, young people and everyone, I, I, like I said, I just got this book in today and I have a lineup of people who are just like, hey, I want to oh, well, read good. that right like well, tyler wants a tyler wants a copy my dad already wants to read it i was like hey everybody go. hold up now i now haven't even had this book in my to hand. buy it don't just pass it around. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually it's actually inexpensive as as a book this size goes it's you know 19.99 it's a bargain so we just came off of a, a really strange couple of years where the nhl was disrupted by covid and i know you wrote a book uh about the spanish flu and about the disruption yep. that happened there not the same per se because how the spikes work, the NHL season, if I do remember, did get in. It was just kind of the playoffs and the end of the playoffs that got canceled. Mm. But are there any similarities that you could draw between the COVID year and the Spanish flu years? Well, it, you know, when, the, when it all first happened and the sports were getting postponed and the NHL got interrupted, I was suddenly, you know, suddenly my little nerd interest became newsworthy. And I did get to talk to a lot of people about, and it's funny, as you said, like, as it, as it played out, it proved to be sort of less and less similar, except for the fact that there was this, this, this virus going through the world. But clearly the Spanish flu was, was much deadlier. Um, you know, I don't want to make light of it because, you know, people did die from COVID and, and still perhaps are. But the Spanish flu was, it was, you know, like you could be perfectly healthy today, be sick tomorrow morning and be dead by that evening. I mean, it was that deadly and that quick. And, you know, the hockey players got sick and, and died. One, anyway, Joe Hall died. So in a sense, it wasn't similar. Um, but it was, I mean, and they didn't, as you said, like the season was basically, well, it's funny. It's sort of like the spikes in that kind of went around the NHL season. The NHL season was shorter then. I um, mean, it started in late December and ended by early March. And the Spanish flu had been particularly bad in the late summer and, and fall of 1918. So by, by the time the NHL season started around Christmas, everybody sort of was like, if we were wearing masks, we'd have been taking them off. You know, it was like, oh, it's all fine now, it's all past. And then it got bad again. And particularly out in Seattle where the Stanley Cup final was taking place that year when the Canadians got sick and some of the Seattle players got sick and Joe Hall died. Um, you know, when it was all starting and it looked like anything might happen, it did seem like, wow, it really is history repeating itself. but maybe just because the medicine is better. They had no vaccines then. They didn't have any way to prevent it other than trying to get people to wear masks. And people weren't any more willing to wear masks in 1918 than they were in 2020. Um, it's just a, an interesting quirk. And there are some similarities, but not as many as it seemed like there might be. But it was, yeah, it was to me, it was always like, you know, and when they were coming back and playing, it's like, really, you know, you sure you want to do this? I mean, if people die, it's going to look bad. But I mean, the NHL did a really good job, I guess. I think they also probably got a little bit lucky with the timing again with the way the waves have, have gone. But it was, it was interesting to, to watch from a historical perspective. 
Now, right now you do a lot of hockey history and obviously this new book uh, focuses on the Kenora Thistles and their Stanley Cup championship, but you've done some history in baseball as well and, and also other sports. Is there a difference in the way that you research and go back to find these? Are any of the sports easier? Is hockey in Canada tougher to find information on than, you know, baseball in the States in the early 1900s? Well, more people have been writing more about baseball and baseball history for longer. There are, there are a few people you can call on who are really expert. I mean, there are in hockey too, but nobody, I mean, like in, in baseball, John Thorne is the official historian of Major League Baseball. I, I actually know John Thorne and it's nice when occasionally I have questions and I can just send him an email. It's like, wow, the official historian of Major League Baseball answers my emails that quickly. It's always kind of a thrill. I mean, there's no one sort of like that in hockey. Um, you know, if they're, if they're looking NHL, I'm, I'm here, I'm putting my hand back up. Um, but, but in the fact is, as I said, like now that the newspapers, you can search newspapers online. I mean, often it takes a subscription and I'm, I'm, I'm fair. Like, I still like feel like, oh, the internet is supposed to be free and democratic. I don't like to have to pay for stuff online, but I pay my newspaper subscriptions because it's so important for the work that I do. Um, but it's funny, like when I wrote a few years ago, it's getting to be longer than I remember, a biography of Art Ross. You know, everybody kind of, even if you don't know really the story of Art Ross, you know the name because he's still the, the scoring leader trophy. Um, he's a name. But if he had done what he did in baseball, he'd be, especially, I guess, maybe in the States, but he'd be so famous. He'd be, he'd be you know, Branch Rickey or Casey Stengel or, or John McGraw, and there'd be and each of those guys has three or four or five biographies about them. When I wanted to do a biography of, of Art Ross, there wasn't really anything to go to firsthand. And I remember Milt Dunnell, who was the longtime sports editor of the Toronto Star and lived to be over 100. And he was good friends with my boss, Dan Diamond, when we used to do the NHL guide. So I had access to a guy like I could call up Milt Dunnell and go, hey, you know, what do you think about this? And even this, I mean, he's 100 years old. He had he had been covering stuff when Art Ross was doing things. And he was like, really, you want to do a biography of Art Ross? I was like, yeah, come on, Milt. Like if he was a baseball guy, you wouldn't question it. And he was like, yeah, I guess so. And he sent me some clippings that he had from stuff and it was nice to get started. But, but that's the thing in hockey is, or in baseball too, but baseball just so sort of reveres its past so much. And hockey doesn't. I mean, the NHL pays lip service to it and I don't want to knock anybody. I mean, but they, they they care enough but they don't you know they're not going to have an official historian of major league of nhl hockey trying to get it right i mean they did a nice job trying to rectify their statistical database which i think i mentioned before um and uh i lose track of who i'm talking to um you know and and they uh you know and they have the, the site that has but there there's those little quirks that they they still know are wrong and don't care enough because there's there's no real incentive for it so it's just like guys like me who are you know crazily going but this is how it really happened and, and trying to, to to catch their ear now i want to move on to the book here in two sure. seconds in two seconds <laughs> but i i understand the deep history. Again. i i understand the deep history of hockey in Owen sound <laughs> and knowing that you're from there i wonder how much research you've done towards that if it's if it's you know back to the harry family uh, days if it's you know into the team being saved by by the owners if it's all those things there's such a deep history i want to know how many how much there, there, you've done into that yeah well you know it's funny um i guess i'm sort of an nhl stanley cup snob uh i haven't i mean i i certainly acknowledge and i'm interested in anybody who's got the stories there are a few collectors in town who have some really cool artifacts um i like the 1924 memorial cup team story because i guess it's it's 100 years ago almost now uh, I, I, I only, you know, I'm a, I'm a newcomer-ish to Owen Sound. I, I grew up in Toronto. I've only lived here for 15 or 16 years. But I appreciate the history, but I, I haven't probably dug into it as much as I should. I know there's a, new, a friend of mine, Paul White, who is a, a hockey historian and has written a book that came out in the fall about the history of hockey in Owen Sound. It's on the shelf back there, too. Um, so there's certainly people who are more knowledgeable of the local history here than I am. I think I'm pretty knowledgeable about that 1924 Memorial Cup team. But yeah, I probably, it's a bit of a, you know, if it didn't happen in the NHL or, or even in the Stanley Cup before the NHL, I, I have a bit of a blind spot. So I have to admit to that. Well, let's go on and talk a little bit about uh, the main reason why uh, we're here. Uh, part of the reason to promote this new book, uh, Engraved in History. 
tell us a little bit about what got you into this story. What led you to the well, story of the Kenora thistles? This little miniature Stanley Cup, which I've had, smaller since I was about, that I heard. <laughs> had since I was about 10 years old. Um, this would have been 1973 or so. The Hockey Hall of Fame sold a whole collection of all the trophies in miniature, and they were really cool. And I don't honestly know how I still have this one all these years later and why we don't have the others. But this one survived. And if I hold it up close enough, I mean, you can see it is actually engraved. Oh, wow. It's tiny now. But it also came with a booklet, which was easier to read. And that was the first time, like, one of these up here high. It's not, you know, an exact duplicate. It just has the teams and the years. It doesn't have all the names. But it's, it'll say, you know, 1907, January, Kenora Thistles. And in the booklet, it explained that better. So this was the first time I'd ever heard of this team. I mean, when I was a kid, it's funny, another, another old-time hockey uh, historian I can call on and get answers is Brian McFarlane, who is, wrote one of the two forwards to the book. And, you know, when I was a kid in the heyday of Peter Puck, and the Peter Puck, the only stuff I really remember about Peter Puck are the, the history episodes when he was talking about, I uh, didn't talk about the Thistles, but talked about Dawson City and the Stanley Cup Challenge in 1905. And that, you know, like between the Peter Puck stuff and the Kenora Thistles, the fact that they're called Kenora and Thistles and had previously the town had been called Rat Portage. Like, how could that not get in your little kid imagination? Like a team called Rat Portage is on the Stanley Cup. And that was really where it started. Like that was when like I always knew that team and I always was excited by the story. And then many years later, um, it's funny, Rick Brignall, who is the, the publisher who, who Rat Portage Press, who, who published the book and found me to write it. Rick and I met uh, around 2006, probably 2007, I guess is when we met in person. But I had written a book about the Winnipeg Falcons, the Olympic team that won the first Olympic gold medal in hockey for a, a small Canadian publisher. And, and Rick and a friend had written a book about the Kenora Thistles. And we were both like, oh man, I wish I'd written your book. I mean, we both wanted to have written both of them. But that was when we first, uh, first hooked up, Rick and I. And I'd just been collecting stories about the Thistles as best I could over the years. And in 2007, they, they celebrated, they had an event in Kenora where they celebrated the centennial of their Stanley Cup win. And they had a, a book they produced and it was like, I want to be part of this. I want to write some stories for that book. And so I got in touch with them and it's like, by then I was already working for the NHL and had written books and was a little bit established. And so they were, they were happy to have me. It's like, you don't even have to pay me. Just bring me up there to Kenora, put me up for the weekend when this is going on. And, and, and it was a lot of fun. And so I met some people there and started collecting more stories. I, I say in the, in the notes at the back of the book, like I've been collecting stories about the thistles long enough that it had to be microfilm and, and photocopies. Now it's the internet and, and I have it at, at my fingertips, but I'd been collecting stories for years without really, I'd actually had an idea for a, a novel, a YA novel based on the story of the thistles. And I still may or may not ever get to that. But when Rick called me, it was two, two summers ago, right about now, like July-ish of 2020 and said, I want to do a book about the thistles, a real sort of like, like his book was good, but it was a skinny little book for kids like a real the history of the team that will be the official history and the you know no one will ever have to tell it again because we will have it done and I want you to write it and at the time it was like oh, I don't really know if I want to take this on but if this book comes out in two years and it's not by me I'll be so angry with myself so I was like yeah let's do it and I jumped right in and and that's sort of how it and then once I got started it was like well how could I have ever even had a, a minute's thought of not wanting to do this I just had so much fun you know, digging through the stories and, and figuring it all out. It was, I, you know, it's my real nerd passion. I can't say it isn't. <laughs> so when, not if people get the book, when they get this book, <laughs> what, what can they expect uh, between the covers? What, what kind of stories can they expect in there? Well, this is, all right. So this is, I think we'd started to say this before. Like I find like, even though I had said the 1918, the, the, the Spanish flu and the COVID weren't, super parallel. I mean, to me, it's always fascinating how everything that's happened has happened before. Like we think of hockey and you see, you know, like, look at these guys, they don't look like, you know, they're not keeping up with Connor McDavid. They're not, you know, if, if, if Brad Marchand licks them, I think they're just going to be too weirded out to keep playing hockey, but so much is going on. That's so similar. I mean, when they started playing, they weren't even paid to play. 
though there were all sorts of stories about people being offered cushy off ice jobs like hey you know blow off Kenora come to Winnipeg and, and work for our sporting goods company where you know you'll do nothing we'll pay you good money and you'll play hockey for one of the teams here um and and so like as professionalism kind of creeps into the game it's amazing to me like how much like year round even though there's no TV, there's no internet, there's no radio, there's no way to follow these guys except in newspapers. And there are tons of newspapers back then compared to what there are now, but there's, there's hockey news year round. I mean, they don't have a free agent frenzy and a, you know, it's like GM week on Sportsnet this week. They don't have that, but there's just hockey news all the time. Like even in 1907 and before that, Canadians wanna read about hockey, even if it's summer. You know, these guys, I, I sent you the picture, maybe you've got it. Uh, these guys were, most of the thistles were rode competitively in the, in the summer times. And in July, they'd be at regattas in Winnipeg. And then at the, 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 uh, the Royal Henley regatta in, in St. Catharines and people want to talk to them about hockey. It's like, yeah, we're glad you're rowing and good that you're here, but you know, how are the thistles going to do this year? I mean, it was like, it's, you have to wrap your brain around the fact that, you know, seasons last between six and 12 games that the, the schedule is short. The leagues are small. That's why the Stanley Cup was a challenge trophy in the early days, because there was only train travel. There was only cold weather that could supply the rinks. So leagues have to be local and close. But Lord Stanley wanted his cup to be symbolic of a national championship. So leagues can challenge, sort of like the way, uh, you know, a boxer or a, a mixed martial arts guy, you know, they have championship bouts that they, the champion here fights the defender there. Um, so you have to get your brain around that. Like it's a different setup and the game looks different. The rules are a little bit different, but it's hockey, right? There, there are skates and sticks and pucks and, and, and the, the level of interest people had 115 years ago is, is, I mean, it's probably less than it is now just because, you know, everything's kind of hyper now, but it was, it was, it, it was a passion for, for people the way it is now. And, and I think, when you read it, I, I hope that comes across that, yeah, yeah, the salaries are nothing, but it's still like, oh my God, they're paying this guy $2,000. How can they pay a guy $2,000? And people are, oh, we shouldn't do it. We shouldn't do it. We shouldn't, you know, it's exactly like today, only on a, on a weirder antique scale. And that I, I think, I hope that's what people will, will get. You know, it's like, yeah, I like hockey. I didn't know this stuff, but this is fascinating. That's uh, clearly, I, I, I find it fascinating. And I, I hope people will, because I mean, to me, that was, that was the most fun was how much, you know, things change, but it's all the same. Uh, we have uh, this book copy, obviously, that you sent to us. And uh, this book is available right now. You're telling us about a couple events coming up uh, in the coming weeks here in July where fans can go and pick a copy up in the Owen Sound area. But uh, tell the fans where this book is going to be available, how they can get their hands on it, yeah. because uh, it really does look like Eric, it is going to be a fantastic read. I, I hope it will be. Um, yeah, it won't be in wide release. Like You won't be able to find it on Amazon or at your local chapters or Indigo or whatever until the fall. But right now, it is available specifically in Kenora right now. That was, it was kind of, it was delayed from last fall. And once it couldn't be out in the fall, it was kind of, let's bring it out for the summer in cottage season in Kenora. So you can, there, there's a Rat Portage Press, just like it sounds, R-A-T-P-O-R-T-A-G-E press.com. That's the publisher's company. He's selling the books online. Um, there's also uh, Elizabeth Campbell Books in Kenora. And she's got a website and she's selling it uh, you have to contact or you can call or fill out the contact page. Um, in the local area here where I am, um, Marianne Thomas at Ginger Press has copies now. We'll be having an event on the evening of uh, July 28th. And this weekend, I think this will probably be airing about this time, but this Saturday the 16th um, at the uh, Farmer's Market in Flesherton, I'll be there at their Author's Day with, with a bunch of books, not just this one, lots of books that I have. Um, yeah, if, if you want to get it, I mean, I understand people are going to wait till the fall because it is a little easier with Amazon. But if you want it now, ratportagepress.com or come and see us in Owen Sound and we'll we'll hook you up. <laughs> well, uh, well, I'm heading up into Owen Sound in the next couple of weeks. So I'm going to bring that with me and get you to do a little scribble in there if I can search right, you down. Right. <laughs> but on top, <laughs> on top of that, we wanted to talk some Blue Jays with you too, but we're not going to have any time because I know you uh -oh. were part of the I know you're yeah. part of the grounds crew and all that stuff. So we're going to have to have you back on so we can talk about that even further. But Eric, we appreciate you jumping on with us. Uh, it was a whole lot of fun. Everyone remember to go get that book. And thank you again. Thank you.
Listen, we all know someone affected by mental health, and that's why we at the Smitty Mitty Show have joined forces with the Jack Jury Memorial Dirt Bowl, happening at 9 a.m. Saturday, August 13th at Pearson Soccer Fields in Port Elgin, Ontario. A day of flag football awaits you, concluding with raffles, auction, and dinner at the Queen's Bar and Grill. With over $30,000 donated so far this year, looks to be the biggest ever. For more information and where to donate, please visit the Jack Jury Memorial Dirt Bowl on Facebook. Curling features all the best of what people look for in a new pastime. Great sportsmanship, strategy, athleticism, and community. With nearly a thousand curling centers in Canada, there's probably one near you. If you're interested in trying curling, you can find all the information and equipment you need at goldlinecurling.com. Goldline, the choice of champions. I'm Dave Middleton, a proud Sun Life Financial Advisor, and I've got some fantastic ideas for the money that's building up in your bank account due to COVID-19. Make more and protect more. Visit sunlife.ca slash dave.middleton. You're listening to The Smitty and Mitty Show. Welcome back to The Smitty and Mitty Show for segment three, and this is the segment that I have been clamoring for for about two years, ever since we started this thing. This is the Charlie Montoya post-mortem. And let me just, right off the top, I don't relic in anyone getting fired. I didn't want someone to get fired. I'm not happy he got fired. Somebody lost their job. Somebody lost their income. He might not work in the MLB again. I feel bad for that. I'm sorry for that. He seems like a nice man. I do hope he bounces on his feet. For the Blue Jays? That was the right move. You don't sound like the type of guy that is uh, sad to see him go. I'll put it that way. It's not, I don't think he's, I'm sad when anyone gets fired. Like nobody should ever be happy when somebody has a sore moment, especially his first job, the place that he was brought in to take to the promised land. And he just fell short. And, And especially since probably this had a lot more to do with ship, Pyro and Atkins buying themselves time to make some moves. It was kind of a, I feel like it was a time mover a little bit, but we have heard some interesting things. So let's talk about it. First of all, do you think it was appropriate that they fired? Do you think it was warranted to get fired? Uh, a team that's in the playoffs. A team that's in a playoff spot. Listen, baseball has come, and the Blue Jays specifically, have come to a point where it actually is pretty rare that you fire a manager midseason. Um, even more increasingly rare that you fire a manager midseason who is sitting in a playoff spot and a team is expecting to hold on to that playoff spot. Uh, I get it. The Jays just went through a rough spot, but it seems like weird timing to me more than anything. I, was there anyone who's expecting this move? And I get that. There's a lot of times we're firing because you aren't expecting it. But more times than not, you get the feeling that something might be coming to an end. And I don't think anyone was really expecting this mostly because I don't think anyone was actually expecting Blue Jays front office to make the move, to pull the plug. Like, it was shocking to me that they did. And you know what? Like you said, someone's lost their job. But at the same point, like, is this going to turn around the Blue Jays season? Like, is this the move that they needed? We're now hearing throughout the week after Charlie's firing that maybe he didn't have a good hold on the clubhouse, right? Maybe he wasn't in control down there. Not like we ever really expected Charlie to be the super leader that some managers are. To tackle the timing of it all, I think it was decided probably after Oakland that they would have had to have swept the Mariners to give him a chance to keep his job. I think he was gone there. But out of respect for Charlie, they're not going to fire him on the road. It would just it would be a hassle to try and figure that stuff out. And then after um, a sweep in Seattle, I think they decided for sure that he was done. They knew he was fired. They knew it was over. But obviously on the Monday, they had um, Budzinski's, the funeral for for his 17-year-old daughter that a whole bunch of the staff, including Shapiro and and Atkins and Charlie Montoya flew on. And which is actually kind of interesting to me, which is, by the way, I think why they fired him after the Phillies game, because it just gave him an extra game for everyone to calm down. They couldn't do it on the Monday when everyone was traveling to a funeral. That obviously wasn't going to happen. And it just happened to happen on, you know, the Wednesday after a win. I think it was decided weeks ago. 
but I do think it's interesting the fact that they flew on a plane together. I think I do think that Vladdy's let's deal okay, let's deal with the plane first. I think it's interesting that they flew on a plane together and they probably had some conversations about where this team was going. There's no way they just sat there square faced and you know the front office knew that Montoya was going to be fired at that point. So what did they say? What did they say to each other? There had to have been a, a communication in that way. There's no way you can go a whole flight without saying anything. And I also don't think it's a coincidence that it happened after the Vladdy thing. It was pretty clear that Vladdy on first base, you know, he lackadaisically went to first base to cover on a strike three. Mm -hmm. Didn't get there in time, missed the bag. He kind of owned up and was telling the dugout that, look, I didn't touch the bag. I did not touch the bag. Don't challenge, don't challenge, don't challenge. They challenged anyways. He looked very frustrated, rightfully so. I mean, for his play and then for the dugout on top of that. And then the very next play, they probably have the runner on first picked off. He's called safe. They can't review it. There was a lot of frustration in Vladdy's face there when he went and sat back in the dugout. Coaches came over to give him a pat on the back to tell him to let it go, basically, it looked like. But I wonder if that was kind of, if that kind of was the nail in the coffin, that they already knew it was going to happen, but that was just cementing that this is going to happen. Because that, that's a mistake that can't happen in the MLB. Charlie said after the game that he didn't look up and that none of the staff was, all the staff was worried about the replay. And nobody was looking at Vladdy. That's inexcusable. inexcusable. That should never happen. There needs to be somebody watching the play. That's a rookie mistake on a team that is here, not just to make the playoffs. That's here to contend for a world series championship. So I think that had something to do with it too. Well, there's so many different, you know, it may, that, I think that's the case of the straw that broke the camel's back, right? Like you said, the decision has been made for probably a week prior to that, um, at least a few days prior to that. And he obviously didn't have the room. There was obviously stuff that we were not seeing, hearing, reading about, about this Blue Jays clubhouse, because uh, you look at a guy like Bo Bichette, who right after the firing of Montoya said that he doesn't disagree with the move right? They need someone that can lead them in the right direction. So clearly, and we're not talking about some guy who plays, you know, half the season comes off the bench. Like this is Bo Bichette, your um, starting shortstop, right? Like this is a guy that you need to have playing. You need to have his mind in the right space. You can't have him questioning management decisions. So it needed to make a move. It, it, unfortunate timing, I guess, like a timing that nothing you can do about, but the Blue Jays now have to move on and they're going to do so, you know, under interim management, they're not going to make any management moves right now, um, probably until next year. So it, it's up to the rest of the coaching staff now to try and carry this Blue Jays team and try to pick up this Blue Jays team from what really, to be honest with you, Mitty, has been a horrible last month of Blue Jays baseball. It has not been fun to it's sit down correct. and watch the Jays the last month. That's why there has been so much clamoring for Charlie Montoya to be fired because it's just the outlook. I mean, Caitlin McGrath, former guest on our show of The Athletic, um, she wrote a piece where she gave some of the players um, anonymity. She, uh, uh, you know, a, a source, an unnamed source, um, a bunch of the players that were talking to her. And she reported very clearly that the team had lost faith in Charlie Montoya. And I think it had something more to do. And, and the article, I think points this way that, you know, when Teoscar Hernandez glides back in the first base and gets, and, you know, gets thrown out on a tag play or where Teoscar um, gets picked off at first in an excusable time, or Vladdy makes, you know, a boneheaded defensive play or all these things are happening where you need, somebody needs to yell. Like what would have happened if Gibby was there? There would have been some screaming. Somebody needed to get in their face and say, this is not acceptable. Let's get it done. And, and we always thought maybe this was happening behind the scenes, but I think this just tells us that it wasn't happening. There were, there wasn't mean a bone in his body in Charlie's body where he could yell at a player and make them accountable for what they were doing. There's reports that they weren't doing their on-field work before they're like early morning on-field work that just nobody was doing the work. They gave up working for this guy. And John Schneider has been around for a long time, becomes interim manager. And I think I think the front office is hoping that he can just take this over and run with it. I think they like him. He's been through the organization. He's won championships in the lower levels with Vladdy, with Bo, with Cavan, with Lourdes. He's won championships with all of them in the minor league. So I think they want him to be the manager of the future. And, and now it's just for him to take it. And by the end of the year, it's going to take if they make the playoffs, if they can win a run. I think this is his team. I don't think they're going to go out and make a different move. And I, yeah, I look at it like Charlie Montoya, when he was brought on to be the manager of this ball club, it was never 
anyone's idea that he was going to be the guy to lead us to a championship, was it? Like, certainly not us. And I don't think Blue that, front sorry, office. Sorry for interrupting, but that makes it so confusing that we talked about before the year why they gave him a two year extension with a third year option. They gave him an extension to start the year when all of us were sitting here saying, why did his his role on this team he did a, a good job it was to help them through the rebuild he did a good job doing that but this is not his team this is not the team for him in the future so what why the extension and that's the kind of baffling part and now the firing obviously it, did the blue jays think that they were still going to be in a rebuild right that couldn't have been it like that couldn't have been maybe they thought that coming into this year when they offered him the extension that he did have the room Right. Maybe they didn't know that yet. So it, it's baffling to me. I've seen a lot of names thrown around and obviously we know that Shire is going to carry them through the rest of this year and, and maybe beyond, but um, I, there's a lot of people saying, bring back Gibby. I don't think Gibby's ever going to be back managing in the big leagues, to be completely honest with you. Not, not just the Jays, like the big leagues, he's done managing. I, I don't think he's going to be back as much as Gibby fan, like love seeing him, loved having him as a manager. It's not going to be the move the Blue Jays made. Oh, he was he was rumored that, for the Mets job before Showalter took it. That, that he was he was at least interviewed for that job. So, I mean, obviously he doesn't want to be there because the front office in New York really liked Gibby and wanted to bring him back, and they went with Buck Showalter instead. Well, and, and what what Gibby when Gibby was on this team when Ross Atkins took over, and was fired because he didn't want to go through a rebuild, right? So. It, I don't think he's going to be coming back. I think it's Schneider's team to roll with here. Um, quickly here, the Blue Jays um, this week and, and moving forward, we've hearing a lot lately about the Blue Jays opponents and the vaccine requirements. Are you sick and tired of this yet? Because I am. I'm sick well, and tired of hearing the commentary from across the border that this JT is all Muto. Did you, did you saw what JT Romuto said when the Phillies came in. Yeah. And then what, what Merrifield said when they came in. What, what Merrifield is the baffling one to me. First of all, it's not just the Canadian rule. We've said it a hundred times. Jays players can't cross the border to go to the States either. If they're not vaccinated, the yeah, States you, have the exact same rules. And you want to know why you don't hear about it? It's because they're all vaccinated. Because they're all vaccinated. And teams like the Yankees who were reported that, you know, judge Stanton and some other big players in that team weren't vaccinated. They all nutted up and they got vaccinated. Like they all well, took it for the team and, and realized that they need to be there to play the Jays. They can't miss, you know, uh, nine games a year against the Toronto and even certain players on the Red Sox who missed games earlier this year at the Rogers Center have said yeah yeah you know what by the time the end of the year rolls around I'm gonna have to go do this because my team needs me when playoff baseball comes around and don't kid yourself if you don't think that there's going to be four ALEs teams in the playoffs this year and we so there's two things that we're going to go long in this segment but (laughs) whatever the a couple things. One, Whit Merrifield. I, I'm assuming you saw what he said, but I will kind of draw it out here because it was pretty frustrating. He basically said that he did his own research, all that jazz. Uh, he didn't think it was that it's a personal decision, blah, 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 blah. But if I get traded to the right team that wants to make a push in the playoffs, then I'll consider getting, I'll get it. I'll get it for the right team. So are you saying that Kansas City is just not good enough for you? Like the team that drafted you and has put a lot of money into you, they're not good enough for you to get back. That's exactly what or, I'm saying. Or is that saying that, you know, I'm fine with getting the shot. I just don't want to get it right now. And if I'm forced into it, I'll do it. And the other confusing thing, because I'm just going to rhyme it off, is what does your own research mean? You're literally in a clubhouse with multiple doctors. Mm -hmm. And if those doctors say to you, hey, uh, you have a sprained ankle. You're going to be out for six weeks. Here, take these pills. You don't second. Nobody's going to go, wait, I'm going to go on WebMD. I'm going to look this up myself. Nobody's saying. I'm going to go home to my personal x-ray machine. They're going to say, okay, where, what do I need to take to get back on the field? But if they go to these doctors and say, should I get the shot? And my assumption would be the doctors, because most credible doctors would say that, would say, yeah, you should get the shot. And they're going to go, no, Wit, Wit needs to do his own research. What does that even mean? Like, what, it's just, it's so confusing. Get the shot or don't get the shot, but deal with your consequences if you can. And then 10 players, including five staff, like the Jays are playing a quad A team right now. Yeah, and you know what? They better start winning some ball games too, because this is where they need to make up ground. Uh, anyways, we've kind of gone along here on the back half of the show, but we will uh, wrap things up on the other side of the break. You're listening to the Smitty and Mitty Show across the TSMS Radio Network. 
I'm Dave Middleton, a proud Sun Life Financial Advisor, and I've got some fantastic ideas for the money that's building up in your bank account due to COVID-19. Make more and protect more. Visit sunlife.ca slash dave.middleton. Listen, we all know someone affected by mental health, and that's why we at the Smitty Mitty Show have joined forces with the Jack Jury Memorial Dirt Bowl, happening at 9 a.m. Saturday, August 13th at Pearson Soccer Fields in Port Elgin, Ontario, a day of flag football awaits you, concluding with raffles, auction, and dinner at the Queen's Bar and Grill. With over $30,000 donated so far this year, looks to be the biggest ever. For more information and where to donate, please visit the Jack Jury Memorial Dirt Bowl on Facebook. Curling features all the best of what people look for in a new pastime. Great sportsmanship, strategy, athleticism, and community. With nearly a 1,000 curling centers in Canada, there's probably one near you. If you're interested in trying curling, you can find all the information and equipment you need at goldlinecurling.com. Goldline, the choice of champions. This is the Smitty and Mitty Show. Smitty Mitty Show for one last time this week. Tyler Middleton, Noah Smith, taking you through the end of the show. And that's pretty much all we have today, Mr. Smith. We got some people to thank, though. We do have some th- people to thank. We should probably thank our guest on the show, Eric Zweig. Uh, fantastic chat with him, learning about his new book. And if you haven't, make sure you go check it out. Uh, available, it's a little tough to get right now, as he put it. It's not, not on the Amazons yet, so uh, you can't just deliver it to your house. But um, it is available. You're just going to have to do a little bit of legwork to go out and get it. Uh, engraved in history, the story of the uh, Kenora Thistle Stanley Cup champion squad. I've actually sat down and started reading our copy, and uh, it's off to a pretty good start. Learning things. I guess that's the most important part of reading. Speaking of my parents, let's thank the sponsors. Dave Middleton, Sun Life Financial. Life is brighter under the sun. Gold line curling, the choice of champions. And by the way, the Ontario Tankard coming back to Port Elgin, men's and women's side. Make sure you check out for that because uh information is going to be coming out fast and furious here soon also the jack jury memorial dirt bowl we're getting awfully close Less so make more. sure you go online check out their facebook and instagram if you want to add a team or if you want to just donate you can find them there as well some nice raffle prizes make sure you get out and watch them flag football that does it for us here on the smitty midi show this week thanks for tuning in across the tsms radio network and on the smitty and midi show podcast we'll see you again next week here for more sports talk